0: I Am the Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when a cassette tape ran 90 minutes but held infinite promise, when drugs went suburban and parents didn't helicopter, when stars walked among us but you couldn't even prove it. I Am the Fly, David Klein, guiding you through the pre-digital past on a pair of warped wings. In this episode, I conquer the fear of death with a little help from the family genius. La, la, la. Tenafly parlance, the obviously smart kids were known as brains. As in, Seth Leibowitz? Kid's a total brain. Being a brain meant your hyper-developed intelligence had externalized itself. You had become your thinking organ, pasty complexion and all. And if you had the smart disease, well, that was it. Brains were fated to consort exclusively with other brains. Being anything else, popular, for instance, was out. no one called my brother a brain. Bro was in another, much cooler category. Classmates called him Genius Johnny, an alliterative accolade that mere brains would never acquire. He was mostly self-educated. Johnny could spend the entire afternoon on a couch devouring a book. An early favorite was the quietly subversive The Teddy Bear Habit, about a would-be rock star with an embarrassing fixation. I was far too restless to ever spend the day reading, unless it was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. At 11, Johnny was a current events hound. He wrote letters to a Catholic assemblage of public figures. Ernie Banks of the Cubs, Francis o. Kelsey, the FDA official who kept thalidomide from being available in the U.S., Gunnar Yaring, a Swedish diplomat who attempted to broker peace in the Middle East. And his requests weren't childlike and gushing. Rather, they were sophisticated and peppered with questions not everyone was willing to answer. FBI kingpin J. Edgar Hoover, for example. Dear Mr. Klein, Mr. Hoover received your card on February 2nd. While Mr. Hoover would like to comply with your request, it's become necessary for him to forego autographing material in view of his heavy schedule. However, he wanted you to have the enclosed photograph. In connection with your other inquiry, Mr. Hoover does not comment on material other than that prepared by personnel of this Bureau. Sincerely yours, Helen W. Gandy, Secretary. Like the- And oh man, could he write! At 13, my brother was a fully formed critic. Here's an excerpt from Johnny's review of Lucas Tanner, an insipid dramatic series that premiered on NBC in 1974 in Tenafly High's school newspaper. Every once in a while, a series appears on television that is so asinine, so inane, and so sickening that a humanitarian reviewer is obligated to advise those who have not made the mistake of watching to continue following their wise path. Tanner is a teacher who becomes personally involved with a different mixed-up but well-intentioned student each week. There was a girl my age in seventh grade with long blonde hair. She used to call me Freak McGeek. Whenever she saw me, she'd laugh and say, Eek! The Freak! I don't like being laughed at, Mr. Tanner. Who does? See you tomorrow, Scott. Yes, sir. He gets assistance in this Herculean task from his young next-door neighbor, a blonde squeaky fella named Glendon, who lives with his grandmother until she dies in what I consider by far the best episode. My parents recognized Johnny's precociousness and curiosity, and began having grown-up conversations with him about current events and literature when he was still in single digits. Johnny's teacher simply raved about him, sometimes to the point of poetry, citing his level of insight and the natural intelligence that came gushing forth in his words and writing. As for me, getting a laugh from my classmates was the ultimate affirmation. My teachers didn't like this at all, but there was nothing quite like it in the school day, when your classmates would reward you with a flood of laughter. It was like getting a standing ovation, and positive reinforcement was something I desperately desired. I was still having basic misunderstandings about life on planet Earth. There was a lot I didn't get. Baseball, for instance. One night, I'm in Dad's den in front of the black and white TV where the Yankee game is just beginning. Dad's in the kitchen, fixing himself a gin and tonic. He calls out to me. Hey, David, who are the Yankees playing tonight? I have no clue. But at that moment, the announcer seems to come to my rescue. We'll give it to you right now as the umpires come out of the dugout. That must be it. Uh, the empires? I hear Dad crack up in the kitchen. When he comes in, he explains to me what it is that empires do. Being a sort of genius, Johnny was well aware of the power he derived from his superior mental apparatus. Sometimes he would amuse himself at the expense of others. After the 1967 World Series, when I asked him for help writing a letter to the Cardinal's ace, Bob Gibson, he intentionally riddled it with spelling errors of the most pathetic variety. One time I woke up next to him on the bus back home after day camp, and he convinced me I had emitted a stream of rude, Freudian gibberish in my sleep, which I'm ashamed to recount here. He was keenly attuned to my mental lapses, misunderstandings, and naivete. Even singing along to a gentle Beatles ballad could result in a harsh wake-up call. She gives me everything And tender leaves. leaves And tender leaves? You dope! You think that's why he loves her? Because she brings him salad? I even repeated the food-related mishearing of a Beatle lyric on Come Together. together, All the meat But sometimes he used his power to do good things. He once cured me of the fear of death. Skin and bones. Ooh, she lived down by the old graveyard. Miss Pierce must have jumped three feet in the air when she came across ghost ballads. Actually, when I try to picture that moment, Miss Pierce, my school's music teacher, flipping through rows of vinyl in a record store or a Salvation Army thrift shop, it's impossible. I cannot picture Miss Pierce in the world outside of school. A broad-shouldered woman with bright red lipstick, emphatically drawn-on eyebrows, and a helmet coif of fierce vermilion, she seemed to exist in technicolor, like one of the townspeople in The Music Man. Miss Pierce's devotion was to seasonal songs and traditional ditties pulled from a perverse past, many bowdlerized for today's young Americans. We sang Ding Dong Dell, Kitties in the Well, about a would-be cat-drowner named Little Johnny Thin, only, in the original, it was pussies in the well. Around St. Patrick's Day, Miss Pierce would lead us through the cleaned-up version of Has anybody here seen Kelly? K-E-double-l-y. Has anybody here seen Kelly? Have you seen it smile? In which the unfortunate lass who loses her man in the big city avoids the ignominious fate depicted in the original 1908 version chained her to the grill, and soon they heard her shouting in a voice both loud and shrill. Has anybody here seen Kelly? Naughty double entendres might have been verboten, but by introducing us to songs about casual violence, Miss Pierce was simply maintaining an age-old tradition. Whether it's chopping off the tails of blind mice, or the implied bodily trauma of Rockabye Baby, songs for kids have always traded in dark subject matter. The first song I knew all the words to was a murder ballad called Josie, which Ed McCurdy recorded in 1957, the same year Dean Gitter recorded Ghost Ballads. Josie saw her lover and her revolver drew. Then Josie pulled the trigger, shot him through and through. He was her man, but he wouldn't come home. Gitter was an in house producer for Tradition Records a small label based in the West Village that was financed by some Guggenheim or other and run by Paddy Clancy of the Clancy Brothers. After helming Odetta's acclaimed 1956 debut, the one Bob Dylan said inspired him to go folk in the first place, Gitter put out a record of his own on the venerable Riverside Jazz label. Featuring a spooky haunted house cover by the great Charles Adams, ghost ballads consisted of 12 supernatural-themed songs from the public domain. It was not a big seller, and one imagines that by the late 60s, the only people still playing it were public school music teachers like Miss Pierce, who needed content for Halloween. Gitter based his version of Skin and Bones on the rendition by folk singer and folklorist Jean Ritchie, one of the hundreds of songs she sang with her family in Hard Scrabble, Kentucky, and subsequently helped preserve. Ritchie wrote that she and her siblings would take a wicked delight in singing the song for kids who had never heard it before and weren't ready for the little surprise at the end. But had Miss Pierce owned a copy of Jean Ritchie singing traditional songs of her Kentucky Mountain family and played us that version, it would have produced perhaps a mild shock and nothing more. The door and... oh! On the other hand, Dean Gitter's rendition of Skin and Bones is like a Shirley Jackson story set to music. The tale of an emaciated old woman who takes a walk through a bone-laden graveyard and enters an old church house that needs sweeping unfolds with unsettling dream logic and ends with a surprise that may as well have been an ambush. She opened the door and... Ah! That awful, jagged scream. It sounded like it was torn out of somebody. It drove me backwards, almost off my chair. Stunned, embarrassed, trying to collect myself, I noted that no one else appeared the least bit traumatized. In fact, many of my classmates seemed to have very much enjoyed the shock. In my defense, the liner notes of ghost ballads confirmed that, in recording Skin and Bones, Gitter's final geschrei ruined a very expensive microphone in the studio," and almost ruined me. Months ago, I had been moved into a bedroom of my own, but that night I slept in my brother's bed and continued to for weeks afterward. I didn't want to be alone in the dark, ruminating on that scream all by myself. Johnny was stronger, and he frequently pinned me down and did the classic older brother tortures, the hanging spit, the Indian burns and innovations of his own, like the steady breastbone punches he called tom-toms. But early on we made a pact not to jump out and scare the other guy. Neither of us thought the shock was worth it. And in that spirit, as we lay in bed one night, Johnny convinced me that I didn't have to worry. Scientists were at that very moment working on a pill that would keep you from dying, and by the time I was older they would have it perfected. The story was plausible, and he sold it well and I found genuine comfort in the thought of an anti-death pill. The front cover of Meet the Beatles, four faces suspended in a haze of silvery blue and black, was mesmerizing. Each visage stood up to intense inspection, but I often fixated on John on the far left, specifically the sideburn that was visible in the dramatic half-lighting. While the burns of the other three beetles were tapered, John's looked impossibly thick and lush, edible almost. One day, I will have sideburns, I snuck outside to whisper. The arrangement, John Paul George across the top, Ringo at lower right, suggested that Ringo existed on a slightly lower plane from the other three. The photographer Robert Freeman, who also took the cover shots for Rubber Soul and Help, confirmed that the placement was deliberate. In Freeman's words, Ringo was the last to join the group, he was the shortest, and he was the drummer. So perhaps it was appropriate that, while none of the faces confronted you with a smile, or even a pleasing glint, only Ringo's mug held a splash of sadness. The copy my brother and I shared was well used and crudely repaired with masking tape on two sides on the back cover. I made check marks next to the record' seismic moments. I want to hold your hand. I saw her standing there, and all my loving, as well as two deep cuts. The wiry proto power pop confection hold me tight and not a second time. The dower closer. I want to be your man had no check mark. Not even the most rabid Beatle fan would call it a great or memorable Beatles song. Historically speaking, the most notable thing about it is its origin story. One fantastic day in London in 1963, Andrew Luke Oldham, manager of the fledgling Rolling Stones, was out for a walk, ruminating on the follow-up to his band's debut single, when he spotted John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and asked if they happened to have a song to spare. You know like bumming a cigarette. The two Beatles agreed to join Oldham and the Stones at a rehearsal studio, and Mick and Keith watched in amazement as they turned a rudimentary melodic crumb into a full-fledged song. Dick and Keith came away with a lot more than a follow-up single. They'd been taught an object lesson in how a songwriting partnership works, and it was a revelation. I Wanna Be Your Man was a revelation for us, too. After Johnny discovered that one of the Beatles lets loose with an ecstatic bark just as the song fades out, it became a ritual for us to hover heads close above the spinning record in delicious anticipation of that final before erupting with imperfect brotherly unison. In lesser rotation were various U.S. releases on Capitol. The Help soundtrack, Something New, Something New, Beatles 65, and Beatles VI. That's what we called it. These came to us courtesy of a tragic benefactor, whose mark appeared on the upper left corner in thick-lined pencil. Steve Silva was in his late teens when my father treated him for leukemia, At some point during the treatment, he gave Dad his Beatles records to give to us, knowing that he would never be able to go home and play them. I would think of S. Silva when the dark-tinged opener No Reply played. By 1966, the Beatles were in the kids' basement collection with our cheap portable record player. Dad may have liked the harmonies and the wit of the early Beatles, but he was never a rock and roll guy. I'm pretty sure he never let his backbone slip, and likely had medically sound reasons at the ready to discourage anyone else from attempting it. But with Rubber Soul, their genius became undeniable to anyone with ears. When Dad came home with a copy of the US version of Rubber Soul, the only time when the songs were better on a stateside release, that sealed it. Dad was back on board. He loved Revolver even more. From then on, Until Let It Be, released posthumously in 1970, the arrival of the new Beatles LP was the best day of the year besides your birthday. Things were never quite so paradisical as on that Saturday in spring when a New York radio station would play every single Beatles song and the house was full of Beatles from morning till night. Hearing the songs in alphabetical order but out of context was a strange thrill, as was hearing songs you didn't even know. All of us loving the Beatles felt like true kinship, like rooting for the same sports team or being members of the same religion. One day the folks packed the three of us into Dad's big red Dodge, and we drove to West Hampton out on Long Island. Liberated from the confines of the back seat, Johnny and I ran around on the beach as the sun set. Mom called out, Wave to the Beatles, kids! And we leapt up and down at Surfside, waving wildly across the Atlantic, calling out the names of our heroes, who are surely out there somewhere, beyond the horizon, and as far out of reach as Pluto. And then, after dinner one night, a hairline fracture appeared in that rare instance of familial unanimity. Mom, Dad, and I were in Dad's den, listening to Benny Goodman's famous Carnegie Hall concert of January 1938. Sing 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 was one of Dad's favorites. Towards the beginning, there's an almost scarifying vamp, like every musical color you can imagine, happening all at once. And then the bottom drops out, leaving just this menacing jungle drum cadence. That's Gene Krupa, Mom says with quiet awe. Greatest drummer. Wouldn't you say, Rich? Dad nods. Better than Ringo? Ugh, Mom says. Ringo's not even in the same league. Now this is heavy. One minute we're all united on the Beatles, like they were the Yankees of music. And yet here's Mom dissing Ringo like the relief pitcher who's been getting shelled lately. Anyone, even a Beatle it seemed, could outstay their welcome. next up hey daddy-o we're gonna go down to the basement there's something down there